Hi there. It's Brooke Shields. If you're like me, you know the importance of surrounding yourself with things that bring you joy. And few designers spark more joy than Leslie Evers. All of their textile artworks and print designs are created in-house, and a large portion of the collection is made in California. I love Leslie's colorful pullovers, and with a full range of accessories, there's something on the site for everyone. Leslie Evers offers free shipping on all orders. And this month, you'll receive a unique gift with every purchase. Go spark some joy at leslieevers.com. That's L-E-S-L-E-Y-E-V-E-R-S dot com. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Vanessa Bayer, and this is my brother, Jonah. And we are so excited to have you hear the latest season of our nostalgia-themed podcast, How Did We Get Weird? Not only do you get to know me and my brother, you get to know the stories that made us the absolutely rad people we are today. Check out our episodes where we've welcomed hilarious guests like our friend Andy Samberg. That's it! That's really it! And Queen Casey Wilson. I really went cart before the horse. I said, I think I have an opportunity to interview Leonardo DiCaprio. (laughs) As a high school student. And you do not want to miss out on our funny segments like (laughs) Change.Dork. Change.Dork. And congratulations, you played yourself. Congratulations, you played yourself. Listen to our podcast, How Did We Get Weird, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What do you do when life doesn't go according to plan? That moment you lose a job, or a loved one, or even a piece of yourself. I'm Brooke Shields, and this is Now What? A podcast about pivotal moments as told by people who lived them. Each week, I sit down with a guest to talk about the times they were knocked off course and what they did to move forward. Some stories are funny. Others are gut-wrenching. But all are unapologetically human and remind us that every success and every setback is accompanied by a choice. And that choice answers one question. Now what? At this point, you had... You wanted to go to Yale, right? I wanted to go to Yale. I did not get into Yale. And did not get into (laughs) Yale. I get rejected from Yale, which I had applied to early. I had all my emotional eggs in that basket. I went upstairs when I got the rejection letter. It was still an analog letter in those days, obviously. And I, I got the little envelope. I went upstairs to the bathroom and I shaved my head with scissors and a razor. If that doesn't tell you that I was an insanely overdramatic child who really just needed to be an actor and not go to Yale, like that just tells you it's good you didn't get into Yale. You're you're way too emotionally unstable as a 17-year-old. You just need to be an actor. <laughs> that voice you just heard is none other than Cal Penn. You might know him as one of the world's most famous stoners and one of two stars of the Harold and Kumar franchise. But did you know he also worked in the White House? That's right. Cal Penn is the king of pivots. He's done a dizzying amount of work in the industry. 
House Sunnyside designated survivor, and he also worked for former President Obama. We sat down to talk about his new book, You Can't Be Serious, and his incredible journey. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. I'm very excited. I'm so excited to get a chance to talk to you. Um, where are you, where are you right now? I'm in New York, so I am uh, I am a New Yorker. Oh, all right. I was born in Jersey. I was I grew up mostly in Wayne and in a town called Freehold, oh. uh, which is where Bruce Springsteen is from. Yes. He went to my rival high school. Oh, uh, I know, I know. So those are our, those are our big claims to fame for uh, where I grew up. And so, you <laughs> what high school did you go to? Freehold Township High School. Freehold Township yeah. High School. Because I went to I went to high school in Englewood, New Jersey. Um, yeah, but I commuted from the city to Englewood, which wasn't done okay. in the eighties. Like it was the reverse commute, but it was crazy. Totally. I was like the one kid from from New York, <laughs> from the city. Yeah, yeah. What was your childhood like in New Jersey? Like it's so funny. I've I've thought about that a lot because it's the opener to mm-hmm. this book that I wrote. And so the first draft that I turned in, I thought, and the way that I had pitched the book to my editor was, look, it's going to be funny. Like these are stories <laughs> that I've told very close friends after like beer number five, you know? And so it's just, they're just going to organically be fun, charming, funny. I turned in the first draft and she goes, Hey, um, this is super dark. What a dark wow. series of chapters. And the reason being, and I know you'll appreciate this as a fellow artist is I feel like, a lot of times when we write things, mm. you remember things like, okay, what, what was a difficult time in childhood like? Or what was it like getting bullied in middle school? Which, by the way, when I was in middle school, was not called getting bullied. It was just called eighth grade. So in writing that, I didn't realize that I was reverting back to whatever those emotions were. So the first draft of those chapters oddly read as more painful than they are. Because when I tell those stories verbally, they have a lot of humor and there's a lot of obviously perspective of being a 40-something-year-old who can look back at childhood with a, a lot of good humor. Well, that's interesting because one of the things that struck me the most is your positivity through all of it, you know, and that there's this real joy in just everything and really understanding it. I can understand how it seems like these are rough stories because you're talking about stories of being bullied, eighth grade. Yeah. There is something in that, but to find humor through all of it is a through line. And yet I tell my kids stories like, you know, I uh, walked into my dorm in college and my roommates had taken my Brook doll because, you know, I had a doll after me in the 80s, (laughs) as one does. And it was hanging by a little noose. Uh. And it's like, it sounds horrible. And it it was funny. But when I tell my daughters things like this, they get so upset and they get so, so, so sad. But I learned from a very, very early age, the power in humor for me. That was how I survived. When did you realize you were funny? Uh, Eighth grade and sort of by force. I was the Tin Man in our school's production of The Wiz. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and, you know, at the time, if you were in the school play or if you were a soccer player, you stayed after school for your either soccer practice or rehearsal. So that late <laughs> bus that took all the kids home was where all the tormenting would happen, right? The soccer players were cool. We were not. But the tormenting, like, it was things that by today's standard, thankfully, there's a way that we recognize them, right? We were getting beat up on those buses. We were getting spit on. We were get, you know, it was just things that... That were not just the jokey thing that you can say, oh, how silly that was what middle school was. They were they were certainly painful at the time. So the school play was about to go up. 
And, you know, it was like three nights in the evening for the parents to come watch. And our drama teacher says, hey, great news, everybody. We're going to do three scenes from the play in front of the whole school during a special assembly in the afternoon. And we were all like, absolutely not. No, no way. <laughs> that sounds like torture. Yeah, this is going to be horrible. Like, we already get beat up on the bus ride home. Absolutely not. They don't need to see me in silver makeup being the Tin Man, you know? <laughs> and the director was like, then this play's not going up at all if you don't have the guts to do this. And so we were forced to do it. The students all come into the auditorium. They're already yelling things to make fun of us. Like, we can hear them from backstage. And I go out for my third scene. It was the scene when the Tin Man gets his heart from the Wiz or the Wizard of Oz. Mm. And I'm supposed to take that heart around my neck and go to the center of the stage. And the line was, all you fine ladies out there, watch out. And I was dreading saying this because I knew for nerdy 14-year-old me, that was just going to be endless torment. People were just going to repeat that line. So you've heard this phrase, actors being in the zone, right? This was the mm. first time that I remember being in the zone. I apparently, and there's video evidence of this, I had the heart around my neck. I, instead of staying in the center of the stage, walked to the very edge of the stage, and in the cockiest bravado that I could muster, I looked at the audience, and I said, all you fine ladies out there, and then I did this massive pelvic thrust, <laughs> and I said, watch out, <laughs> and the crowd went wild, everyone started laughing, ladies, the girls started screaming, everyone was on their feet applauding, it was a standing ovation, and on the bus ride on the way home, all the soccer players started applauding and I thought they were kidding. And they said, dude, that was so funny. We had no idea that that's the kind of thing you guys were working on. And it totally just broke down this wall. Now, look, aside from the problematic nature of like, why was the onus on me to not be bullied? <laughs> it was <laughs> Well, but, but you, you take the situation and instead of shrinking from it, yeah. You go deeper into it and oh, for sure. reverse the narrative so that you're in That's control right. of the situation. So that was that sort of divine intervention of the zone. Totally. Did your parents come and see the performance? Yeah, so they came and saw it and I think they thought it was good. They thought it was it was fun and it, Did you do the hip thrust? I did. I thought I, I thought I was going to get in trouble when we got off stage at the assembly and the director instead was like that was amazing. Do that again. I'm like, oh, okay, okay. cool, great. great. Uh, and, and in fairness, like that that's why I love comedy, right? It can bring people together in a world, especially now, a world that's so polarizing. And so I still mm -hmm. love that. And, and my parents didn't necessarily understand that that was a love that went beyond just a hobby. And I get it. I mean, for context, you know, they're immigrants. They moved to the States in the, in the early 70s. And my dad is an engineer. And that was what allowed him to come to America. The 14-year-old me, of course, didn't care about any of that. I was like, okay, I don't care why you don't think the arts are a viable career. All I know is I'm this 14-year-old who was born and raised in New Jersey, and I want to be an actor. So there was definitely some tension growing up there. Did you resent that at all, or did you feel it, or did they try to stop you? In writing this book, I called my parents so many times because I wanted to talk to them about how much of what I felt was accurate. And I said, hey, on a scale of 1 to 10, how embarrassed were you of me when all your friends would come over for a family gathering and all the other kids would say they wanted to go to med school and people asked me and I would say I want to go to film school or I want to be an actor? How embarrassed on a scale of 1 to 10? And my parents got really quiet and they said, I don't know why you think we were embarrassed. How did you get that into your head? We were never embarrassed. We were scared yeah. because we just didn't think that somebody from our community could have a career in the arts, nor did we know that that was a viable career because we didn't have that background. I thought that was so interesting. 
Hi there, Brooke Shields here. If you're like me, you know the importance of surrounding yourself with things that bring you joy. And few designers spark more joy than Leslie Evers. All of their textile, artworks, and print designs are created in-house. And a large portion of the collection is made in sunny California. I love Leslie's cozy and colorful pullovers. And with a full range of accessories and home decor, there's something on the site for everyone. Leslie Evers offers free shipping on all orders. That's big. And this month, with every purchase, you'll receive a unique gift based on your order value. So what are you waiting for? Visit leslieevers.com and pick out something joyful today. That's L-E-S-L-E-Y-E-V-E-R-S.com. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Being an actor and becoming an actor is fraught in the, in the best best of all times. Yeah. And whenever I hear somebody is is in it, I, I sort of say, oh, dear God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but you had the extra layer of, of like, racism in that. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about your early experience with that? That was the one piece that I hadn't necessarily anticipated. So my acting teacher had always said, you know, here are the odds. Whenever any of you start pursuing a career, you know, casting directors and producers will always only allow you to audition for things that they think you're physically right for. That's just the reality of when you start your career. It doesn't go away, by the way. Right, exactly. That's it never goes forever. away. 
ever. Exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately. Right. And so the way that it was explained to us was like, look, and this turned out to be true, obviously, you know, you, you walk in to an audition, they're going to tell you no, because you're too tall, you're too short, you're too fat, you're too skinny, all of those things. And you're just going to have to deal with that. You can't let that get to you. What I wasn't really prepared for is that, especially in those days, and thankfully, the industry's changed a lot in beautiful ways. But if you were an ethnic performer, you didn't have the luxury of being too tall, too short, too fat, too skinny, because they usually would just say, yeah, we don't want somebody who's brown. And that was super shocking to me, because some of the shows that I loved, that I grew up watching, were like, Seinfeld and Friends and shows that took place in New York City. And I didn't recognize at the time had no performers of color on the show, not because we didn't exist, but because the folks making those shows wanted to exclude those communities. And and it was a different time. You know, I'm so glad that that doesn't exist now, not just for the sake of like people like us being able to have a a fair shot at a job, but for audiences, no matter what the audience's background. Was there a a moment that just sort of made you almost quit because yeah. you experienced it in your face. Like, why didn't you have an accent? And one casting director was disappointed that you weren't even, what do you say? You're not even. She, yeah. She goes, are, are you even Latin? <laughs> are you? And she was disappointed that she couldn't, she couldn't put you in that box. God damn it. You're not even Latin. Right. <laughs> there were a lot of moments where I, I kind of thought maybe this isn't the right fit for me. And If I can be a little cocky, it's not because I didn't think that I had the chops. I just wanted a fair shot, right? If I wasn't getting an audition because I wasn't the best person for the job, so be it. That happens, right? You go on 100 auditions, you only get one callback. So I get that. That that I I would have been fine with. It was the other stuff that I didn't have control over that I I thought was um, so demoralizing. And then it finally dawned on me through these auditions that a lot of times you get asked to put on an accent to mask bad writing or to mask subpar writing. And so the character you're playing automatically gets assigned these racial or ethnic signifiers in ways that producers think are helpful to advance the comedy. But in reality, they don't do anything other than connect that character to race, ethnicity, religion, which is ultimately like super boring, right? Because then you're not playing anybody. Um, I'll give you a quick example. Do you remember the show Sabrina, the Teenage Witch? Yes, yes, with the cat. With the (laughs) cat. Exactly, with the talking cat. So I got to audition for this show once, and I was super excited. It was only three lines, and I needed credits on my resume, right? So my agent at the time, who was wonderful, she said, here's the info. Here are the three lines. I created this whole backstory for this guy who was supposed to be a a kid in Sabrina's study group in college. And I was like, all right, he's from the Pacific Northwest, and he likes small batch organic coffee, and he probably likes Pearl Jam and Nirvana, so I wore a flannel to the audition. (laughs) I thought I did well, and I was walking back to my car, and the, the casting director ran after me, and he goes, hey, man, the producers would love for you to do it again, this time with an accent. And I was like, ah, okay. So again, the decision was totally mine, right? I could have said no thank you, but I went back in, and I thought I need a credit on my resume. The job, I think, paid like 500 bucks. And my rent was like five fifty for the month, so that was huge. And I said the thing that I usually say when people ask for that, where they said, "We'd love for you to do it again with an accent." And I said, "Sure. What kind of accent would you like? I can do Brooklyn, Scottish, Irish, Portuguese. <laughs> you know, I just like went through the list. They were obviously not amused, uh, and so I, you know, I made the choice to do it. Nobody was forcing me to do that, but I, I, you know, not to offend anybody, that that the racial stuff didn't bother me. But the bigger issue as an artist is that's a boring choice, man. Right. Like, it's just, I can be funny based on the merits of how I can create this character. That's literally what I do. 
just let me do my thing. I promise you it'll be funny. Do you think that there's a space for stereotypes in comedy? I definitely think there's there's a role for stereotypes. Also, the you know that old adage of well, stereotypes come from some element of truth, right? And so, right. depending on the comedic bit, if you're stripping away context or adding context or subverting something that used to be a stereotype to make it funny for a different reason, I welcome the reality that audiences' palettes have changed. And so, if mm-hmm. my job is to be funny, I have to evolve with what their palettes are and to sort of update my jokes for things that people are going to find funny. I don't see that as limiting. I actually see that as the opposite, where it makes me have to get my chops together, you know? Well, it's funny, because when I when I did Suddenly Susan, when I was like, the first time I was really, well, the first time I was ever really, really allowed to be funny yeah. was in Friends. But one of the things that I had to hook into, which I didn't resent at all, I loved, yeah. was the physical comedy, yeah. so that people could laugh at me falling on my face or here's the tall girl here's the big girl you know it goes deeper than falling you know slipping on the banana peel i mean it's just always funny you just can't so seeing me get slapped in the back with a huge fish and knocked down or you know or fall off a stool or something it was sort of bizarrely liberating and i remember thinking oh my god because they had me falling off something almost every week. And I finally said, <laughs> I was like, can I not always just fall off a chair or a stool or something? Can you, can we make the comedy more more funny? But um, I do think that that's a really interesting conversation and you just make it much more sort of intelligent. When you were cast in Van Wilder, yeah. you said it was a brown catch 22. Can you explain that? Yeah, sure. Uh and I'm glad you you uh, you asked about Van Wilder when you were talking about falling off uh, the stool and getting hit with a fish. I'm like, oh, I should I should talk about Van Wilder because it, it was my first real big big movie, and there was a scene where my character is uh, the whole movie. He's trying to ask out this woman. She she agrees to go out with him, and they're they're about to try to make love in his room, and he sets all these scented candles around the room. And she is putting massage oil on him. He's massaging her. By the way, like, just keep in mind, early 2000s uh, teen comedy. So not not particularly highbrow. But then my character's <laughs> back catches on fire from one of the <laughs> scented candles. And the rest of the scene, I'm running around the room with my back on fire, which, by the way, they th- that was a practical stunt. So I had to wear a prosthetic back. They lit it on fire. There are all these guys with essentially hazmat suits standing around in case something went wrong. But didn't they do it like the first scene? Wasn't they, like, did it the first day? Day. they did because it the first day. They did it the first day. And you were like, why did they do it the first day? And they're like, well, because if something happened to you, we'd be, we wouldn't have to reshoot all yeah, the other things. Like, if you thing. die... Yeah. We can replace you really quickly. Totally, totally. Like, we'll just replace you there. God, so, but but I, that's Hollywood. an example of like, yeah, aside from the the sort of ethnic stereotyping question and, and all that equation, the, the idea that like I got to light my back on fire and run around. You talk to stunt guys today and they're like, what producer in their right mind let an actor do that for real? And I was like, they said they wanted the wide shot. The, the special effects were too expensive, so we did it, and it was a blast. But the the Brown Catch Twenty Two is something that I, I call it this because it was the thing of like, okay, you in order for this, by the way, for any actor, right? In order to get your foot in the door, you have to take small parts, and that builds up your resume and the credits on your resume, and then your agent hopefully can open more and more doors for you. The challenge with a lot of ethnic performers and a lot of women as well was that the only roles that you're being offered are the ones that are sort of reductionist or sort of stereotypical and not particularly challenging, and so the Brown Catch. 22 was like, do I take those in order to get my foot in the door for something bigger? 
because I'm not able to audition for something bigger unless I've done those. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it was that sort of thing. But but yeah, I mean, the, the advice that I got from the people who I was close to and had a lot of mentors who were really good about the practicality, which I, I don't think we talk about nuance enough these days and that you do have to make tough choices that are sometimes less than ideal in any any job. But then for you, the next sort of watershed moment in a way came as you were a stoner when you were in the comedy. Harold and Kumar go to to White Castle. Yeah. That, you know, how did that role come about? Really, I, I think the reason that I got that part, and by the way, when I read that script, it was the funniest script that I had read. And I called John Hurwitz, who I had met at a birthday party. He's one of the co-creators of the franchise. Mm -hmm. And I called him up and I said, hey, man, thank you for sending me this script. You're never going to sell it because studios are never going to greenlight a movie with two Asian American men. So when you can't sell it, why don't you call me and like, let's find some venture capitalists who can throw together a couple hundred grand and maybe we can make it. And he laughed at me and he said, I am sorry that that's been your experience, but uh, no, we're selling this to a major studio. And I said, no, man, I'm telling you, the studio is just going to change the characters to be black and white. And he interrupted me. He's like, well, listen, Cal, we're making a movie called Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle, not David and Jason Go to McDonald's. So we're, <laughs> we are selling this movie. David and, and Jason. <laughs> and they did. They sold it. And one of the reasons that I ultimately got the part, you know, there was no shortage of actors to play the roles that John Cho and I ultimately played. But I was one of the few brown actors who had had a studio movie under his belt because I had done Van Wilder. And so let's cast him in this. And of course, there's there was no stereotyping in Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle. It's subverting them. And actually, had I not gotten Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle, which was completely career-defining for me, and I'm, I'm very indebted to the fans of that movie. One of my favorite art films that I had the chance to work on is called The Namesake, based on a novel by Jhumpa Lahiri. And I would not have gotten the part in The Namesake were it not for Harold and Kumar, because Mira Nair, who directed that film, her then 14-year-old son, Zoran, was a huge Harold and Kumar fan. And that's basically why I got to audition for the project. And you had seen her work and were so unbelievably moved yeah, by it. It did. So uh, Mira Nair, who directed it, had done a, one of her first films was called Mississippi Masala with Denzel Washington and Sarita Chaudhary. And I remember seeing that around the same time that I was playing the Tin Man. Um, <laughs> and it, it, I, I didn't realize fully that I had never really seen people who looked like me on screen until I saw this movie. And I thought, why am I feeling so seen? by a film mm. with incredibly flawed, beautifully flawed characters, all of the things that make you human. And it kind of dawned on me like, wow, we don't really see ourselves unless we're stereotypes or, or cartoon characters. And so so it really, it meant a lot. And for, for friends, I have this conversation with friends a, a lot. If you've always grown up with the privilege of seeing characters who look like you on screen, you sort of don't feel the thing that I couldn't quite put my finger on, which was if you don't see yourself you kind of feel like your options in the world might be limited. Like maybe certain things aren't for you. Mm. One of the reasons that project was so special was both artistically and in terms of who was behind it. A lot of things really came full circle for me. The idea that I could be this storyteller or this actor was in some way because of her early films that, that inspired me. Hi there, Brooke Shields here. If you're like me, you know the importance of surrounding yourself with things that bring you joy. And few designers spark more joy than Leslie Evers. 
All of their textile, artworks, and print designs are created in-house, and a large portion of the collection is made in sunny California. I love Leslie's cozy and colorful pullovers. And with a full range of accessories and home decor, there's something on the site for everyone. Leslie Evers offers free shipping on all orders. That's big. And this month, with every purchase, you'll receive a unique gift based on your order value. So what are you waiting for? Visit LeslieEvers.com and pick out something joyful today. That's L-E-S-L-E-Y-E-V-E-R-S.com. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? Yes. This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way. A brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before. Tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, first of all, you you're you're my friend now. Just I'm yeah, yeah. going to tell you that. Now we're friends. But I think your life has been so extraordinary. But the pivot to politics is seemingly unexpected. How did you get involved initially? So the I had no desire at all to do anything in politics and for folks who are listening who if the only thing you know about me is that I played a stoner three times and then went to go work for the president <laughs> of the United States. You are correct to wonder why and how and whether I was qualified. So when I was working on House, Olivia Wilde, who, you know, fantastic actor and director, she was on the show with me and she had a plus one to an Obama campaign event. And I very begrudgingly said that I would go with her. 
even though I had no desire to sort of do anything political. And I was really inspired by what I saw uh, at that event. And so she and I and Tatiana Ali and Megalyn Ichikanwake were the four artists who signed up that week. This was back in October of 2007 to go to Iowa, the first state to vote in the primary process to help out the Obama campaign. And, and then I went there and was, and fell in love with the fact that it was just people who were doing something that they believed in. And, and I had the chance to work on that campaign then for, for the next roughly year or so. And that's, that's sort of what opened the door. Um, I also think what was really eye opening for me was, you know, I, I get why there was a lot of media attention when I left the show house to take the sabbatical from acting and go go work in the White House for a couple. Of I years. can't believe they let you out of the contract. Oh, me neither. Just like that, I, I, that's a double edged sword in a totally. way. You're like, thank you. I know, I know. I'm not really. I mean, thank you. <laughs> the way that that went down, I, I had when I got the offer to work at the White House, I had called my agent at the time and told her, and I said, "Can you please chat with Fox and with House?" to see if there's a way to write me off. And she called back almost immediately and said, they said, no, there's no way they can do it. So I actually went to David Shore, who created House, and I made an appointment with him, sat down with him in his office, and I said, I know the answer has already been no, and I already know that somebody's approached you about this, but I got this offer to work for President Obama, and I, I would love for at least you to consider helping me do that. And he goes, I had no idea. This is the first I'm hearing of this. You got an offer to work at the White House? That's so cool. <laughs> and, and how did you get the, the job in the administration? Because you didn't, in a sense, you didn't really advocate for yourself. No, I didn't. I know. This is so silly. Um, so I worked- you had, you had worked for the campaign. For like a year. And anyone who worked on that campaign got a link- uh, right around inauguration, I got before or after the election that said, if you're interested in working for the incoming administration, upload your resume to this website at change.gov. And so I uploaded a resume and I thought, I guess I don't want to bother anybody, right? Like if I'm qualified to work at the White House, somebody will call me, but I certainly don't want to upload my resume and then make a hundred calls like, Hey, just so you guys know, I'm super interested, right? Because A, I was already on a TV show. That was my dream job. And B, I didn't want it to seem like, oh, Cal Penn thinks that just because he's on this TV show, he can ask for a job at the White House. I don't know. I didn't know how that worked. So I applied. The only person in the world who I told was my manager, my acting manager. But you had a direct line of communication I, to Obama. I did. And people forget, <laughs> people forget this. When you start working for any political campaign early enough, you get to know the candidate. It's usually a very small operation. So you do get to know people really well. Part of it is probably I felt like there was a bit of imposter syndrome there. Like, wow, I can't believe hmm. that I would actually be considered. And then there was another part that was just very self-conscious. And maybe I am really qualified and they'll just figure it out. You know, I don't know which it is. But at inauguration, Mrs. Obama, who I had not met before, came over and said something very casual like, I hope you stay involved. And my manager was standing next to me. He was my plus one. And he goes, well, you know, Cal applied for a job, right? And she goes, uh, what do you mean? And he goes, yeah, yeah, he applied for a job at the White House and nobody even called him back. So I was like, dude, please, not now, not now. And Mrs. Obama says, oh, who did you apply with? And I just blurted out, oh, I just put my resume on change.gov, the website that you guys sent around. And she looked at me like I was insane, and she called uh, the president-elect over and made me repeat 
what I had done. And then he basically said, okay, let's, if you're serious about this, let's figure Ooh, out. You're in trouble. If there's a, the, re, <laughs> the reason I even tell the story, like, A, it's obviously funny and self-deprecating and ridiculous, but let's say you started at a small startup firm, right? And you worked there for a year and that firm got bought out or that firm expanded in a huge way. And you were really proud of the work you did and you wanted to continue working for the new company. Don't just upload your resume. You would call your boss and be like, Hey, man, I am so proud of the work we did together. I would love to be considered. In what ways did working, because you kind of went in with zero experience. Totally. <laughs> I mean, that's another now what moment. You All of a sudden, you find yourself. Huge now what moment. You find yourself, oh, I'm in the White House. I'm working in the White House. In what ways did that change you? I left working in the administration with a lot of reverence and inspiration for the process of what's possible. And here's why. that I had the chance to work with thousands and thousands of people who were taking a leave of absence from their private sector jobs, just like I was. Many of them were teachers or, or some doctors, some people who were in law school. Um, you know, There was no rhyme or reason to people's background necessarily. It's just that they wanted to do what they also thought was the right thing to do. That's something that happens regardless of which administration is in power. Other thing was my job was – one of my jobs was uh, as the president's liaison to young Americans. I worked in the outreach office. That meant that because – Obama loved hearing ideas that he disagreed with. Our mandate was to meet with people who we agree and disagree with. So that meant that in my case, you know, young Republicans were coming in to talk about things like healthcare and climate change. And we were trying to come up with solutions that everybody could sort of compromise on. It didn't mean that the president wasn't going to advocate for what he wanted and what he thought his base wanted, but it meant that, that we realized the only way to actually accomplish things was to listen to each other and to have conversations that are, I think, really tough to have today. But that was the biggest takeaway for me, was the idea that, that these things are still possible. I wanted to ask you just briefly about your relationship. Yeah. Because it's so beautiful to me. Thank you. But I'm curious as to why or how you were able to keep it private for so long. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's so funny when I was writing it, there are two chapters in the book that have nothing to do with <laughs> merit. Just, you just say it though. It's like in the book, I went back and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> There's a chapter about how my partner Josh and I met and fell in love. We've been together 11 years. There's another chapter about going to a strip club drunk with friends a couple years after college for a bachelor party. <laughs> Both of those chapters are the only two chapters that I just didn't think twice about writing because they had nothing to do with merit. They're what editors call a palate cleansing <laughs> chapter because you have serious things, you have discovery thing. Okay, here's how I achieved this in my line of work. And then here's just like a chapter that has nothing to do with your success. But then the book came out and I realized my naivete was understandably a lot of journalists, especially those who really like profit off of the clicks are like, gay, Cal Penn writes gay, gay only book about being gay, very gay book only. And I was like, oh no, that's, <laughs> and I was like, well, I, I'm happy to share that chapter in the book. That's why I wrote it. But I did not think it was going to distract from what the book is actually about. So in retrospect, I probably should have like given that chapter to the Atlantic or the, you know, the New Yorker or something like that with like, hey, do you guys want to run this six months before my book comes out? But that said, to your point, like I, there was so much love about sharing my story. There was not, I think, a, a desire to 
sort of hide. I certainly didn't feel like I was living a life in the closet. You know, I, I, I did come out to myself or figure out my own sexuality relatively later in life. You know, I, I meet friends who are like, yeah, I knew when I was eight. I was like, man, good for you. Wow. I was not that kid. You know, it, it was a little later in life for me. But then when my partner, Josh, and I met in D.C., he is an incredibly private person, sort of like my parents. And so the mm. last thing he wants is like, we go to movie premieres together. He'll come to work events with me, the whole thing. But he and my parents, when we go to premieres, they're like, cool, we know you have to do the photo line and the red carpet because you have to sell your movie. We're going to grab the popcorn, go through the side entrance <laughs> and just see you at the seats. Because it's, it's um, you know, as someone who has never been able to keep anything private. Yeah. All of my grades from school were published in Life magazine. Oh, my my, my first period was in People magazine. Just because I, I don't know what. It was a slow news day. I don't know. But it Yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's not that you know, I, I think people feel that if you're choosing not to share a certain aspect of your life, that that means that you're either uncomfortable about it or you're ashamed about it. And the contrary I've found for many of us who live in the public eye and prefer having a certain modicum of privacy is the opposite is true. I am so proud and thrilled of who I am, of my loved ones. Exactly. It comes from a place of respect. Yes. Um, do you have a date set for, for the wedding? wedding? No, not yet. Yeah. We, we were. Can uh, I be a flower girl? Please. Oh my gosh. Would you? Can I come? I want to come. Would you? I would. Yes, you invite me. I'm coming. Uh, all right. I mean, this is good to know. You're local too. You're you're New and Yorker, I'm, so I'm really good with with family members. The parents will talk your ear off. They'll love it. <laughs> that was the hilarious Cal Penn. Keep an eye out for pictures of his wedding, featuring yours truly as a flower girl. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But Cal, if, if you want me, I'm, I'm, I am free. You know. If you want to hear more from Cal, pick up a copy of his book, You Can't Be Serious. If you want to hear more from me, subscribe to this podcast. Now What? with Brooke Shields on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now What is produced by the wonderful Julia Weaver with help from Darby Masters. Our executive producer is Christina Everett. The show is mixed by Bahid Frazier and Christian Bowman. A special thanks to Nikki Etor and Will Pearson. Hi there, it's Brooke Shields. If you're like me, you know the importance of surrounding yourself with things that bring you joy. And few designers spark more joy than Leslie Evers. All of their textile artworks and print designs are created in-house, and a large portion of the collection is made in California. I love Leslie's colorful pullovers, and with a full range of accessories, there's something on the site for everyone. Leslie Evers offers free shipping on all orders. And this month, you'll receive a unique gift with every purchase. Go spark some joy at leslieevers.com. That's L-E-S-L-E-Y. E-V-E-R-S dot com. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hi, I'm Vanessa Bayer, and this is my brother, Jonah. And we are so excited to have you hear the latest season of our nostalgia-themed podcast, How Did We Get Weird? Not only do you get to know me and my brother, you get to know the stories that made us the absolutely rad people we are today. Check out our episodes where we've welcomed hilarious guests like our friend Andy Samberg. That's it! That's really it! And Queen Casey Wilson. I really went cart before the horse. I said, I think I have an opportunity to interview in a (laughs) as a high school student. And you do not want to miss out on our funny segments like Change.Dork. Change.Dork. And congratulations, you played yourself. Congratulations. You played yourself. Listen to our podcast, How Did We Get Weird, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.